Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. I think I maybe I, I know I I know I say that at the beginning of every podcast, but especially this topic means a lot to me. So if you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell me a little bit about you know what you do, and then we'll just kind of dive in from there. Sure. So thanks again, Casey, for having me on. So excited to be here. Um, so my name is Mary Kingston Roach. I am the founder of uh, a company called Live Curious, and um, I deliberately made it a verb because we're meant to take action on our curiosity. Um, and before that, I uh, started off my career as a teacher, which really grounded me in um, just valuing curiosity from seeing it from my students. Um, then for the past 13 years, after receiving my uh, Master of Public Policy, I've been working in um, federal education and workforce development policy at a national nonprofit, um, advocating for and securing securing funding and legislation to improve education and um, well-being for children and families, especially those most marginalized, um, and have discovered through my process of uh, working in education and in nonprofits, um, the, the power of our curiosity and yet um, how much of it is untapped that we can use to really help ourselves internally as, as people, um, but also improve our, our policies and practices and how we relate to each other. So I'm also a mom of two young kids, ages four and six, who inspire my curiosity every day and model that and uh, have really helped um, inspire me to take this new step to start my own work. Your work in, um, you know, education policy and also as at a nonprofit was, I guess, like the connecting, you know, uh, part to what we do at NOHS. And I kind of want to touch on that. And then we'll kind of explore, I guess, like the more personal side of why curiosity is, you know, the lens that you decide to focus on. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, your experience you know, in policymaking world and just the nonprofit world as a whole. Yeah. Um, and how I really discovered or start, came to value the power of curiosity is just reflecting on my policy work. And I've done work at all levels. I um, was on my local school board. So I have that kind of local level experience. I uh, worked at a national nonprofit advocating for federal education policies and then have supported advocates at the state level and um, realize that great policy really start really starts with great enriching conversations. You know, to really under, deeply understand a problem, deeply understand different perspectives, and to find out the best policy solution from there. But too often, um, and partially because of the policymaking process, that it's um, not as accessible to everyone as it should be. Um, Oftentimes, we see policymakers jump to a conclusion about what is the problem or only consider their perspective or limited perspectives. And so we end up with policies that are at best inadequate and at worst harmful. And um, we can do so much better by really nurturing our curiosity and making sure that we're hearing from people, especially that are most impacted by, but certainly more perspectives and that um, we're really thoughtful about addressing the root cause of the problem and not just perhaps a symptom of it. Um, and so that was my inspiration for um, curiosity coming from the policy world. Just touching briefly on my teaching experience, um, and we can talk more about this too, but uh, we are born with such powerful curiosity and we still have it inside us, but 
at the same time, it's it's a innate attribute that we all have. It's also a muscle. And over time, uh, we almost don't realize it, but we've been conditioned out of it. And ironically and sadly, it often does start to, to dissipate once we get to our formal schooling in kindergarten. And it's it's no fault of uh, teachers and, and people who are working in classrooms. A lot of it is kind of the, the policies um, and requirements we place on teachers to rush through curriculum and to do more surface level learning instead of um, asking our, our kids what are they interested in and designing project-based learning around that, experiential learning, student voice and choice, going deeper into that. And so um, coming out of that, that experience, I know we can do so much better. I've, I've seen the power of curiosity-driven learning, and I've been able to do it myself outside of the confines of having been a teacher. So I know it's possible, um, but really excited to, to work with educators and parents to help nurture that for their kids as well. I'm so glad that you were able to discover kind of, you know, how impactful curiosity is in the policymaking world, right? Because it is a given. And I use that word um, intentionally that plenty of people and leaders, you know, you know, that you work beside with just they do have limited experiences and a lot of them because maybe of their skin color, the way they were raised or you know, many factors that aren't chosen, but are kind of come with the lived experience will not ever understand with at least empathy, uh, experiences other people have had. It just won't happen because the life that they've been given or brought up in or kind of, you know, end up leading, just don't create the space and, you know, opposition and hardship, um, unfortunately do lead to that lack of experience. So it, it kind of, it, 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 I just don't understand how we've gone so long historically, you know, being okay with less so now, but being okay with policymakers assuming so much about the people, their policies and their, their decisions have on those that either they represent or even those they're trying to help. It's like, if you can take a step back for a second and be curious and be, um, you know, critically think, I think curiosity and critical thought have a lot to do with each other. Um, but we continue this pattern of creating um, solutions to symptoms, which you mentioned in your TED talk, uh, rather than than asking the questions that require response and answer from those who actually experience what we're responding to. Um, you know, that doesn't seem very hard to me, but also at the same time, I can't ex unfortunately accept, or I do recognize that there are people that we consider leaders. We even elect, you know, obviously we elect them, um, that just don't take that step. Maybe their work has just never involved that step to, you know, ask the right questions. So going back again, like it's, it's awesome that you had that kind of aha moment working in that field. Right. And then tell me a little bit about your nonprofit work as well. Yeah. So I've, since I exited the classroom and got my master of public policy degree, I've worked at just two organizations, which as a millennial is, is a lot of time to spend at two organizations. <laughs> Um, knowing that most millennials and especially Gen Zers now um, 
go go to more places. But proud of that because you know I think um, this is just somewhat off topic career advice, but I think it, but related to curiosity, which is it's it's so important that as as humans we we keep growing, and as long as you feel like you're you're growing and you're challenging yourself in some way. It's great if you can stay in an organization for 10 years, as I have for this last one, right? So after getting my MPP, I went to, um, it's called the National Association of Secondary School Principals, and they advocate for um, middle and high school level principals um, and provide professional learning and conferences as well. And it was that was my first foray into the advocacy world. And then it was there that I learned about um, Institute for Educational Leadership, which has been my home for the past 10 years. and um, Really proud to to have been there for ten years. Uh, they do awesome work um, in the education and workforce development spaces and in leadership development for people. And kind of connected, Casey, to one thing you were just saying about you know why do we let our policymakers just make these assumptions and, and do that? I think and and the statistics that I've seen back this up too. Um, people feel uh, feel like they don't have have agency anymore. Like their vote doesn't matter. You know, it's almost becomes this vicious cycle. Like, oh, because my vote doesn't matter. Like I'm not going to vote. And then we end up with these people and I'm just like going to ignore it. Or, um, it, it feels like we're stuck. Right. So in my, uh, in my work, not only did I do direct advocacy, but the part I became more passionate about, and it makes sense because I feel like I'm a teacher and a coach first is coaching people how to affect, uh, advocate effectively. And the part I would always say would be, you know, think of advocacy as just another part of leadership. Every leader needs to also be an advocate. Advocacy is really just good. It's telling your story in a way that moves people to see um, your experience and understand it and understand, you know, not only perspective, but what, how, what your recommendations are to, to improve things. So um, I think if people can see advocacy as, just part of their life where it doesn't have to be this big formal thing. You don't have to take a part-time job or a full-time job to do it. But the the policies we end up with, yes, the policymakers, we elect them and they're voting on them at the end of the day, but it's our collective responsibility with what policies we end up with. And I know that that may sound hard to swallow because we do have a lot of policies right now in our country that are really being contested as they should, but it's ultimately our level of curiosity at every step of the way to engage in the process, to ask questions, to push back with with that curiosity that that leads us to these policies. So I think it, it's a I would I would make it a call to action for us to start with co- curious conversations, you know, asking questions, not only to understand people and issues better, but asking, you know, why was this policy written this way or, you know, um, to try to undo any harmful policies and then staying with that process so that we don't leave it up to just, you know, a tiny percentage of policymakers, but we do see it as our collective responsibility. Uh, the storytelling and the dialogue is so crucial. I mean, it, it parallels to curiosity, right? Um, and that's a huge part of our mission with this podcast is to really expand not just the, into the formal ideas of what people practice and their professionalism, but also to uh, to find the stories that lead to those like professional roles that they have. Tell me a little bit more about what you've witnessed and also kind of how you have 
what you've included in your advocacy and your policy making, and also um, as a coach, the the difference between achievement and curiosity. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks for the question. And um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think some examples in the TEDx talk were uh, it helped, as you said, illuminate that. So um, for example, I gave our, what, what happens to our curiosity when we become adults. I gave the metaphor that it, we're like a that house plant that you still have in your house, but you forgot to water. It's still there, just thirsty for our attention, right? So how can we revive that? It's still in us. Um, but yes, I mean, what I observed as a teacher is, and this was at the height of our last federal education law, which was No Child Left Behind. And that had even stricter measures around achievement. But I would argue, and from talking to a lot of teachers and being in the policy space, that it hasn't changed much. And there's still that culture of just that pressure to get to certain test scores. So what I observed during that time teaching is just, you know, so feeling so much pressure on, on myself as a teacher to cover all the standards. Now, to cover something doesn't mean that a student is learning it deeply or that they're interested in it, right? It just means that you can demonstrate that, yes, I cover this as a teacher. But at the end of the day, it's kind of asking that question, what is our education system for? And I recently wrote a blog where I argue that, you know, how we talk about things as a means to an end or an end in itself. I actually argue that education is both a means to a, a means to an end towards in, in the sense that uh, our education system should set young people up to go into whatever path they want successfully and independently and to be have a quality of life. But I do believe that it's our responsibility in our K through 12 system to also make it an end in itself in terms of helping young people develop a lifelong love of learning. Right. And we can't do that if we're only focused on the achievement part. So what I would love to see in our, like some, just an example in our education system, some changes is less emphasis on getting an answer correct and more emphasis on asking really great questions and then giving students tools to research and pursue it in different formats and different ways. Um, and then more peer learning. Um, students have so much to teach each other, not just teacher to student. So, and I didn't actually do a great job of that when I was a beginning teacher. I I didn't stop to think about that as much as I could have. Like, you know, the students in my classroom, let me, let me turn it over to them to teach each other, um, you know, skills or their experiences. So I think it, to a certain extent, it, it kind of goes back to giving up a little bit of the control that we feel we have needed in our education system to move kids through at a certain pace and check boxes and giving students more freedom to to tell us what are their interests and giving them the strategies and the tools to be able to effectively pursue those. Yes, it still means teaching kids how to read well. It still means teaching them math and all the necessary things that in important events in history. But perhaps we don't try to cover as much in one school year or we reimagine what a school year looks like. Perhaps we don't. Um, and I feel really passionate about this, the kids access to after school and, and summer camps and summer learning, um, perhaps bringing that into the school day. So for maybe one day a week is just all enrichment. It's kids get to choose what they want to do. 
And so it doesn't have to be a matter of can you pay for, you know, pay for it or can you find transportation? We seem to set up a lot of barriers that are are unnecessary, but are just how we've done things. Right. And one more point about um, about this is um, you and I have been have been reading a book uh, called Curious Minds. Right. And it, it's a recent book in the curiosity space. It's a great book. Encourage people to, to check it out by um, Perry Zern and I think and Danny Bassett. So they're actually two twins. Um, one is a neuroscience professor, one is a philosophy professor. And they have this term called critical curiosity, which I love. So they talk about this in terms of teaching and learning. And the idea is using curiosity to question the status quo in order to change things for the better. So I believe that is another actual function of our education system, which is not only helping young people um, learn and be prepared for their own lives as individuals, but how can we um, nurture this critical curiosity in them by helping them ask why or why not, or really pick things apart um, and analyze and, and imagine um, to, to imagine a better world to change the status quo. Um, it, isn't that what our education system should be, should be for as well? So I think, you know, the bottom line is curiosity liberates us from having to, to do things the same way. And it, it gives us that permission to question, to improve, to iterate, to, to build on in a way that is very inviting and not oppositional, but says we all have important perspectives and lived experiences. And let's, let's ask each other about that and let's share it. That's lovely. I'm so glad you used the word, you know, it's a curiosity can liberate, which I think ties back to that responsibility thing. It's not like when we use the word responsibility um, in, in the regard to curiosity, that it's like a task or something that is supposed to get in the way. Um, and I think that book, you know, I just kind of thought of this. It's an amazing book. And I think it's something that could be integrated into the books that are, you I mean, even required reading. So if we step back and we consider what nonfiction pieces of work can expand, you know, critical curiosity. Um, we see, we could even see an opportunity to maybe not disturb the system and uh, and find like a common ground between what we are offering students. I was thinking about the thing, one of the things that really kept me curious throughout elementary school was the AIM program. And looking back, I am not a fan because I realized that it really, it took select people once a week out of the classroom um, with the expectation that would, they would catch up with missed work and then offered the, uh, the whole day to ponder and question why through simple, you know, problem solving. And it was a blast, right? Go to the train. You know, it's just always felt fun to get out of my seat and be like, you know, I'm leaving class for a day. Right? But I can imagine like, what if we did that for every single person, you know, first graders on Mondays, second graders on Tuesdays, you know, and just really take away that, you know, that privilege and that, that specialty treatment. Tell me a little bit more about how maybe you and your practice and, and, and professional work have confronted the discomfort that comes with being curious because it's there. And, you know, I think those who even as adults are curious well, they kind of sidestep that. They're like more curious than they are to uncomfortable, but the majority of people want to be 
satisfied and in a position where they don't have to try to understand or unpack the unknown. So what is your kind of approach to that discomfort that comes with curiosity? Yeah, that's a great question because um, we're, you know, I'm advocating for, for people to be more, more curious, but it's, it's in a, in a culture and environment that often resists it. Right. So how do you do that? So I think what I've observed and I, you know, this, I have a memory as a school board member too, um, just asking um, staff who worked in our school districts. So these are people who work on the, the programs and the curriculum every day, like really hardworking people who help um, support students in classrooms and whatnot. I remember asking a question about like some, some of the data. And um, I think sometimes people can perceive questions as like, as accusations, you know, <laughs> um, or, or like that you're interrogating them. Um, because it, when you're in an environment where questions are not usually asked or whether when things are just, you know, accepted. And so, yeah, that, that is hard. And I think with so many things in life, it's really just how you do it. It's um, asking a question in a way that is, um, you know, a little, so- a little softer to say, you know, thank you for sharing this data. I, I'm really curious about or interested in this particular data point. Um, do you mind telling me or can you tell me more about, you know, what what you found behind that 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 data point? What is that story? Instead of saying like, why is this this way? You know, it's it's how it's done is important. And then another piece of advice I give is try to make the setting as comfortable as possible in terms of helping people feel like they're in a psychologically safe space where they can say, I don't know, or they can um, perhaps be wrong and feel still feel okay or safe. So um, if, we, if our goal is to help people be more curious and open-minded, then we want to be in an environment or create an environment where um, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, wow, I think, I think I was, was uh, my point of view was, you know, not as informed on that, or maybe I was wrong or, and it's hard to do that when you're, when you're in a media interview or when you're in a public hearing. So I think we're not going to see overnight the changes um, in the public settings because things are already at, at a level 10 when you're at a school board meeting or things like that. I think there's things you could still do in those settings, like um, establishing norms to at least, um, you know, uh, encourage questions and make sure everyone who wants to speak is heard and basic things like that. But I do think so much of the potential is in the more informal spaces where, um, whether it's in someone's home or something that, a a place that people can co-create rather than that's, it's already been created for them that they're stepping into. That said, I think, you know, there's a lot of potential for, you mentioned college, like, students on a college campus to, you know, to say if they feel like they're the, the classrooms and their professors are not creating that cult, that climate of curiosity or that they can't ask questions to voice those concerns and to, to work on a set of norms and, and maybe even professional development for the professors and the staff to um, help facilitate more curious conversations. That's, that's a lot of the work that I'm I'm excited to to do moving forward with um, educators and and community leaders and people who work in organizations because 
we have to create this environment for people to to feel comfortable saying, I don't know, asking questions. And yeah, um, I think that's that's so much a part of it. And just quickly going back to what you mentioned about No Child Left Behind, I think it's a great example of a policy that was 100% well-intentioned. As you said, it would, the goal was help all kids achieve a certain minimum level, right? And they were very ambitious to say 100% proficiency. I think maybe some of them would admit that they never, you know, they knew that wasn't realistic, but it was a good, you know, good thing to vote for at the time. It got support, but um, good intentions. But I, I would actually be interested. I, I might do research into how, who they talk to, to inform that policy. Because if they talk to more teachers, I'm sure the teachers would have told them, this is a great idea in theory, but to your point, we need to scaffold learning more. We need more basic resources. I'll give you a quick example that I shared in my TEDx talk, which is that because of this pressure to achieve for all kids to get to that minimum level, it did squeeze other subjects that were not being tested on um, out, like social studies and history and phys ed and arts and music. And it focused more on math and reading. And a lot of schools doubled down on that to make sure that they hit that minimum amount. So my first year of teaching, I taught sixth grade language arts, but it was a special class for students who had scored on the lowest reading level the year prior. And it was called reading intervention, which is a horrible name for a class. And these students one weekend realized that they were in a different class. And they said, Miss Kingston, are we the dumb class? You know, and um, I mean, kids are smart, right? And I was given a scripted curriculum to teach that was like kind of kill and drill um, and so that was my first act of advocacy is to go to the principal and say, this won't work. You know, this doesn't honor like what my students are interested in, but also how kids learn. You, you can't do kill and drill. So it was well-intentioned, but it created all these unintended consequences. So I think going back to policy, we have to really understand not only the problem, but understand perspectives to inform the solution or else you're going to end up with a well-intentioned, even if you understand the problem and you come up with a good solution, how it's written and how it's implemented is is just as important. And I guess No Child Left Behind is kind of a cautionary tale in the sense of, um, yes, set, set those high goals, um, set those important goals, but back it up with uh, curiosity-driven conversations to make sure that the way you write it and the way it's implemented, you know, reflects <laughs> Uh, all the in- important voices that, that should inform it. Part two of our interview with Mary premieres August 29th. In the meantime, check out Mary's TEDx talk available on YouTube. Be sure to grab your spot for our 2023 National Conference happening this November and find everything knows on our website, nationalhumanservices.org.